MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold. That's President Harry Truman, of course, on August 6, 1945, announcing that we dropped a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. Another would be dropped three days later on Nagasaki, effectively ending the Second World War. Together, the bombs instantly killed an estimated 120,000 people, with hundreds of thousands more dying from wounds or radiation poisoning in subsequent days, months, and even years. We'd already done much the same with napalm bombs that burned much of Tokyo and other cities to the ground. Spy Talk listeners are almost certainly familiar with all that, and because of the runaway success of Oppenheimer, the spectacular Christopher Nolan film on the A-bomb's father, you're also probably even more familiar now with the successes and pitfalls of the ultra-secret bomb program he oversaw in the New Mexico desert, codenamed the Manhattan Project. You may also have heard by now that Nolan's film is based on American Prometheus, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Published originally in 2006, its subtitle is The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Kai Bird, a longtime friend of mine, I should disclose, is with us today. Kai Bird, my old friend, welcome to Spy Talk. The Oppenheimer movie, based on the book you co-authored with Martin Sherwin, American Prometheus, is such a massive hit that we need not spend much time explaining what it's about. But tell listeners why you titled your book American Prometheus. Ah, well, you want the real story? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to the fake story? Yeah, well, you know, the real story is that uh, Marty and I, as we were submitting the book, we always assumed that the title was going to be his nickname, Oppie. And our editor, on the eve of the last day of, on the eve of publication, uh, we got a call from on Friday, and they said, you know, marketing at Knopf says no. We mm. cannot market a book called Oppie. Mm-hmm. You have until Monday morning to get up, you know, with a new title. Who came up with the idea of investigating Greek mythology for the answer? Well, as I was falling asleep that night, Friday night, (laughs) my wife, Susan, turned to me and said, why don't you call it Prometheus or American Prometheus? Wow. That's some powerful pillow talk. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, wait a minute, Prometheus? I mean, that's kind of obscure. How many people are going to know who Prometheus was? And I rolled over and went to sleep. Hmm. The next morning at eight, eight in the morning, I get a call, very excited, from Marty Sherwin. And he says, I had dinner last night with Ron Steele. 
the great biographer of Walter Lippmann. Mm -hmm. And Ron says that he would never read a book called Oppie. And he says, why don't you call it American Prometheus? Ha. Huh. <laughs> <So, laughs> Brilliant minds think alike. So I turned to, I, tur I, I said to Marty, I groaned and I said, oh dear, I'm in real trouble now with my wife. <laughs> so, but you know, America, Prometheus is the Greek god who stole fire from Zeus and gave it to humankind and then was punished by Zeus, uh, nailed to a, a cliff and had his liver pecked out by a giant eagle every night. Hmm. And so this is apt for what happened to Oppenheimer. He gave mankind, humankind, atomic fire, and then he was later punished. Certainly is apt, my God. It's almost a metaphor for American foreign policy at large, it seems to me. Um, in any event, I want to get right into some of the security aspects of, of your story, this being spy talk. First of all, there's kind of an irony of General Leslie Groves, who's in charge of the project, allowing communists and suspected communists to continue laboring on the bombs throughout the war. And indeed, you write that the FBI seemed clueless on Soviet-Russian spies until after the war. You write that in 1945... Oppenheimer was now an influential voice in Washington, and the fact of his influence attracted the scrutiny of J. Edgar Hoover, who, of course, was the legendary or notorious director of the FBI. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, Opp Oppenheimer came under FBI surveillance as early as 1940. That's really two years before he was recruited to become a scientific director. And... Uh, he probably was put on a list of surveillance because FBI agents were wandering around in the streets of San Francisco take in Berkeley, taking down the license plates numbers of people who attending uh, known Communist Party meetings. Mm -hmm. and, and he did occasionally uh, attend political rallies and Communist Party activities. He, we argue, Marty and I concluded that there's no evidence he actually ever joined the party. He was not a joiner. He was a sort of free intellectual and not the kind of guy to submit to party discipline. But he gave as much as $400 a year to various Communist Party activities. Mm -hmm. And he was a man of the left in the midst of the Depression. Mm -hmm. uh, and he certainly was not a Soviet asset or a spy? No, there's no evidence that he ever spied or passed information or uh, anything remotely spy-like. And I draw from your uh, elegant portrait of Oppenheimer that he, he would have rebuffed any efforts by the Soviets to, to recruit him. Uh, did was the FBI oblivious to the presence of the atomic spies, the, uh, the Ted Hall, the Rosenbergs, uh, Klaus Fuchs, and, and so on? Did, were they only belatedly aware of that the Soviets had actually penetrated the bomb program? Right. No, there was you know an enormous effort uh, to put people like Oppenheimer under surveillance. You know when he was director at Los Alamos, his, his personal uh, driver was Army Counterintelligence. 
his phone was often bugged. His uh, every movement was monitored. When he went on a trip to San Francisco uh, on business, he uh, also spent the night with his former uh, lover, Gene Tatlock, who was a member of the Communist Party, and FBI agents tracked him and uh, established that he went in at night and came out in the morning. I mean, he was, you know, completely under, but there were, the FBI, nevertheless, despite all this uh, surveillance and intelligence, they were completely unaware of Ted Hall, Klaus Fuchs, uh, any of the other spies, and there are at least three or four of them at Los Alamos. And uh, so they, they, it was an intelligence failure, as usual, in this <laughs> business. <laughs> yeah, so often. So they're all over Oppenheimer like flies on honey. And almost like spy versus spy in Mad Magazine, they're missing the elephant in the yeah. room, <laughs> which are actual Soviet spies. Yeah, exactly. You know, Ted Hall was 19 years old, a Harvard scientist who came to Los Alamos and just on his own, he was a walk-in mm-hmm. to the Soviets and just decided that he, he was learning stuff at Los Alamos that the Rus- Russians as our allies should learn. And so he walked into the Soviet consulate in New York. Let me ask you this, Kai. Can we assume that the FBI's obsession with Americans who might have communist leanings, uh, maybe members of the Communist Party, and uh, that obsession with domestic politics obscured their view of real Russian intelligence operations here? Well, the short answer would be yes. Uh, you know, they, they had a massive surveillance network. They put thousands of people on a, a list of uh, as potential spies, saboteurs, you know, this is J. Edgar Hoover's obsession. And of course, it, you know, most of these people were simply uh, political activists. You know, Oppenheimer and Berkeley, his political activism was focused on things like, you know, integrating the public swimming pool in Berkeley. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right. Or raising money for to send an ambulance to the Spanish Republic during the, the Civil War there. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, just purely politics. Just politics and, uh, you know, nothing surprising for... And uh, the Russians were our allies in World War II. That, that's true. Now, you know, uh, Oppenheimer at one point, the reason he actually got in trouble uh, in after the war... Uh, was that he volunteered to his security officer one day in Los Alamos. Actually, it was in on a visit back to Berkeley. Uh, he volunteered to his security officer that he they should be watching out for one George Eltonton, who is a British chemist working at Shell Oil Company. Mm-hmm. And he was a member of the Communist Party, and he had actually approached Oppenheimer's good friend, the French literature professor at Berkeley, Hakan Chevalier. And he had told Chevalier that he had a friend in the Soviet consulate in San Francisco, and if Chevalier knew any scientists who were working on on, on weapons projects or 
scientific issues that could be of help to our Soviet allies. He he had a conduit to get the information through a, quote, back door. Mm-hmm. Well, Hakan uh, pitched this one day to Oppenheimer in his, Oppenheimer's kitchen at One Eagle Drive in Berkeley as he was mixing martinis. Of when course. We know <laughs> all these details. And... Uh, and Oppenheimer's response was immediate. It was, well, that would be treason. And that was the end of it. But months later, uh, Oppenheimer actually volunteered to a security officer, you should look out for this guy, George Eltonton. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they pressed him, well, how do you know? Why do you think that we should look at George Eltonton? And he, then he made up some cock and bull story, as he called it, to protect his friend Chevalier, because he knew that, or believed ardently that Chevalier was simply an innocent and naive and and harmless. And he didn't want to involve his good friend Chevalier in a army counterintelligence investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, so he kept the name, he refused to divulge the name of Chevalier for three months until finally he gave it to General Leslie Groves, his immediate boss. And that was the end of it. But this was dragged up after the war by Oppenheimer's enemies, and this is actually what brought him down. Mm -hmm. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a sec. I want to circle back to this sympathy for the Soviet Union among scientists. Their sympathy for the Soviets, our allies, because they were taking huge casualties from the Nazis uh, as they fought back to evict the Germans from Russian soil. Um, It was very common that people uh, supported the Soviets uh, for a a number of reasons. And as I said, they were our, our official allies. Some 500 Los Alamos scientists signed a, a letter on the dangers of an arms race and atomic bombs with, with the uh, Russians. Um, the Truman administration classified that letter that they wrote, uh, but no less than George C. Marshall, the top U.S. military officer, advocated inviting the Russians to Los Alamos to see the test. So... The the sympathies for the Soviets I'm trying to get at was not uh, obscure or, or uh, rare. It, no, was it was widespread. It was widespread. It was common. Uh, after all, you could read in the New York Times and the Washington Post and newspapers across the country, if you were following the war effort, it was clear that the Russians were taking the brunt of fighting the war in Europe. They were taking massive casualties. And, uh, you know, we didn't, in, American forces didn't invade Normandy and France until the summer of 1944. So for three long years, it was the Russians taking all the casualties and taking, you know, bearing the brunt of the war against the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was sort of a natural sort of sympathy, even among people even among American citizens who were not left-wing or certainly communists. So the investigations of Oppenheimer in particular was really driven by domestic politics. 
the red scare, that there was a red under every bed, as it was said. Well, that, but, you know, he was actually brought down in a secret closed-door security hearing orchestrated by one Louis Strauss, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, and Strauss, you know, wrote, had the indictment letter written up by leaking FBI files to uh, William Borden uh, and had Borden submit the letter to the FBI and then the FBI s submits it to the AEC, the Atomic Energy Commission, and they have to open a, a security hearing. And mm -hmm. then Louis Strauss picks the panel, the three-judge panel, to investigate Oppenheimer. And it, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. It turns into a kangaroo court. Uh, they use stacks of FBI documents to question Oppenheimer, and yet Oppenheimer's own lawyer has no security clearance, so he can't see the context in, of the FBI documents. And, uh, you know, it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to be stripped of his security clearance. And then Straws goes to the lengths of leaking the whole transcript of the hearing to the New York Times to further publicly humiliate Oppenheimer and turn him into a, a non-entity publicly. Why was Strauss so driven to destroy Oppenheimer? Well, as you can see in the film that portrays that relationship very accurately and dramatically, they were oil and water. It was bad chemistry. Um, Oppenheimer had a tendency to uh, belittle and even be rude to people in positions of authority who presumed to be smart or smarter than he. And uh, he took a dislike to Strauss's pretensions, uh, and he was rude to him, and Strauss took offense. But the real reason, um, in terms of policy, was that the, the two men disagreed over how nuclear policy. Strauss was an advocate of building the hydrogen bomb, and Oppenheimer criticized that decision. Strauss was in favor of building more and more bombs uh, and putting the atomic arsenal at the center of our, our defense strategy. And Oppenheimer thought this was crazy. He said these are weapons of terror, weapons for aggressors, and weapons that had already been used on an essentially defeated enemy, i.e. Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, he was the father of the atomic bomb going public with his criticisms of the national security establishment, threatening the budgets of the Air Force and the Army and the Navy who wanted to build more of these weapons. And so he had to be brought down. And so this was a decision by the Eisenhower administration. Um, and it was implemented by Louis Strauss, who was, you know, had this personal animus for, for Oppie. And why did General Groves turn on Oppenheimer at a critical moment in those hearings uh, as portrayed in the film? Uh, well, I mean, they had forged a sometimes uncomfortable relationship or might even say often uncomfortable relationship through the Manhattan Project. And yet Groves uh, had great 
respect for Oppenheimer and his skills, uh, not only as a scientist, but as a, a project leader. Right. And yet at the crunch time when Oppenheimer needed Leslie Grove's support, Groves didn't have it for him. Well, it, it, the film is actually very subtle and reflects what's in the book. American Prometheus, whereby, you know, they, these two very opposites, uh, you know, Groves is a gruff, conservative army general. Oppenheimer is a nerdy quantum physicist with left-wing political views, but they clicked. They understood each other. Groves uh, picked Oppenheimer for the position of scientific director at Los Alamos precisely because he saw that the man was ambitious and extremely articulate and charismatic. It was a brilliant choice, even though Oppenheimer had no administrative experience. And they made a team. They were, you know, despite the Chevalier affair, which was very worrisome to someone like Groves, Groves stood by Oppenheimer, made sure he got his security clearance and ignored the Chevalier incident. Um, And they they were a team. They were a partnership. And yes, you're right. In 1954, Groves is compelled to testify, and he's actually threatened. Now, this doesn't come out in, actually in the movie, but he is threatened. In the book, we document that Straws found a way to uh, threaten Groves Groves's army pension if he didn't testify. Uh, and he did, you know, he did testify and he did admit that under the current security regulations of the Atomic Energy Commission, which did not exist in, you know, 1942 or 43 or 44, but in 1954, under those regulations, he would be compelled to conclude that Oppenheimer was not qualified to have a security clearance. And then he has in the movie, he, you know, the... Uh, the actor playing Groves throws in a, uh, an additional ad lib line, which Nolan kept, which was quite accurate. And he, he, he says, well, I wouldn't, of course, I wouldn't uh, have cleared any of those guys <laughs> under mm-hmm. these 1954 definitions of what is secure. Uh, and, and Oppie was never a security risk. To the United States, he was never a security risk. He, you know, there's no evidence. That the his FBI file is eight thousand pages. They were trying to prove that he was uh, a spy or uh, uh, that he was a, a risk in somehow passing information inadvertently, and they couldn't. There, there's nothing there in the FBI documents. Eight thousand pages, and there's no smoking gun. Not only that, but in 1951, in one of the many ironies in Oppenheimer's life, he actually advocated the development of what we now call backpack nukes, uh, small tactical nuclear bombs for American forces. That's true. You know, he, in his opposition to the hydrogen, he was arguing that th- this is a weapon so large that there's no no target large enough for a hydrogen weapon of the kind that they were intending to build. And so why build it? And so 
he was saying, why don't you just concentrate we, our, our limited resources on tactical weapons? And, uh, you know, this is uh, literally a tactical response by Oppenheimer to the hysteria after 1949 when the Russians acquired and first tested an atomic bomb. Uh, his colleague Edward Teller insisted that we should build many thousands of bigger and better bombs. And Oppenheimer mm. thought this was nuts. And so he was simply saying, you know, if you want to build more weapons, they should be smaller, maybe battlefield weapons. But, you know, in this day and age, I think if he was alive and with us today, he'd be looking at the Ukraine war and Vladimir Putin's threatening of tactical weapons. And he would say, you know, there's no no battlefield use for such weapons. They are weapons of terror that, you know, Putin would only use them if he thought that this would terrorize the Ukrainians into surrendering. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a, a, a terror bomb. In fact, in, in, in another uh, part of Oppenheimer's uh, life that uh, struck me was that he advocated using the bomb on Japan, if I understand this correctly, using the bomb on Japan so that everyone would see that it was a weapon you did not want to use. In, you did not want to keep it secret because uh, the United States and its adversaries might be tempted to use a nuclear bomb uh, in a future conflict. Right. And so they needed to see how bad it was. Exactly. By bombing Japan. There, there was actually an open meeting inside the barbed wire fence at Los Alamos in the spring of 45, where uh, many of the scientists gathered in a small auditorium to discuss the future of the gadget. Why are we working so hard on this when it, it, by May of 45, Hitler was dead and Germany was defeated? And we knew the Germans might possibly have a a bomb project, but the, we knew the Japanese did not. So why are we rushing to, to construct this gadget and test it at Trinity? And uh, Oppenheimer allowed the discussion to go forward and then uh, stepped forth and made the following argument. He said, I want to remind you that when Niels Bohr arrived in Los Alamos, the famous Danish physicist, on the last mm -hmm. day of 1943, his mm -hmm. one question to me after he got off the plane was, Robert, is it big enough? Is mm -hmm. it big enough to end all war? Hmm. And this was the argument Oppenheimer made to convince himself and his fellow physicists to forge ahead that they wouldn't, no one was going to understand the ferocity and danger of this weapon until it was actually used on mm -hmm. a combat, uh, on a target in this war. And he feared that if it was not demonstrated, and everyone could see how terrible it was, that in the next war, that war would be fought by two or three adversaries, all of whom would be armed with nuclear weapons, and that would be Armageddon. It begs the question of whether the scientists would have advocated a demonstration test, you might say, on Berlin as much as they did on Japan. Right. There, there may have been, I, th I don't think in the scientists, but 
you know, in the policymakers back in Washington, uh, you know, there was a lot of latent racism in, in, involved in the war against the Japanese. It was a much more, it was a vicious, bloody conflict in the Pacific, um, different in some ways than what happened in Europe. And there were racial overtones to it. So it's a legitimate question. But I think if Oppenheimer had given Harry Truman or given, let's say, given Franklin Roosevelt the bomb in 1943, I think it would have been used on Berlin. Hmm. But we don't know. We'll never know. You can you can infer, one could infer that these that many of these scientists, if not most of them, and many of them refugees from Germany or Nazi-occupied Germany, Nazi-occupied Europe, uh, cared less about what happened in the Pacific than they did about what was going on in, in Europe. Um, I mean, did they not care uh, or care sufficiently about the Japanese atrocities and uh, that they were being uh, inflicting on the Chinese and the Vietnamese and many other people that they uh, occupied and, and uh, treated so cruelly. It's, it, I, I got the impression they just didn't care as much about what the Japanese were doing. Oh, I'm not so sure. You mean the scientists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not so sure that's true. People could read in the newspapers about the brutality of the the war as we advanced island to island and Iwo Jima and um it, you know it it was it was a, a it was a brutal war and of course uh, my you know my own father joined the navy right out of high school and then was sent to uh officer training school, and he missed the war. But he always believed that, you know, if the war had gone on much longer, he would have been fighting in Japan. And uh, he assumed that the atomic bomb saved his life. Uh, that's a common view. But, you know, it's one that I, I have always thought is too simplistic. I think that the, in fact, Marty and I in American Prometheus, we make the argument that, in fact, the war was essentially over. The Japanese were trying to surrender when we dropped the two bombs. And when I mean trying to surrender, they were trying to negotiate uh, one change to the terms of unconditional surrender. They wanted an assurance that the Japanese emperor would not be touched and that the emperorship as an institution would survive. And of course, that's what happened after the war. But Harry Truman's newly appointed Secretary of State, Jimmy Burns, refused to do this, even though people like John McCloy and others argued for it. And uh, Oppenheimer himself was not privy to this information. He didn't realize how close the Japanese were to surrendering. And he only learned this in September when he comes back to Washington for briefings, and he learns it from Stimson. And you'll see, you know, in the film, you you can hear Oppenheimer telling Edward Teller that, well, Secretary Stimson just told me that that our bomb was dropped on an essentially already defeated enemy. So it's a complicated history, and we're going to be arguing about this for a long, for decades mm -hmm. to come.
For sure. And, you know, the purpose or let's say the effect that the bomb, that that Oppenheimer hoped the bomb would have, that the its use on Japan twice uh, would uh, deter uh, nations in the future from governments in the future from, from using it on each other in a future war. But that seems to have worn off uh, in the 75 years uh, since then. Uh, the casual talk of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, for example, right, uh, and and of course there was talk of using a bomb on uh, North Korea, uh, North Korea and uh, North Vietnam. So the the use of the bomb as a tactical weapon has crept back into the equation. Yeah, no, I, we've we're, we've been living with the bomb for the these past seven decades plus, and I think we have become far too complacent. Um, you know, Mar Marty Sherwin's last book came out in 2021, just before he died, and uh, it was called "Gambling with Armageddon," and it's a it's the best history of the Cuban Missile Crisis and of the whole nuclear war fighting how generals thought about this weapon from 1945 leading up to the missile crisis. And Marty makes it very clear in that very wonderful book that, you know, we're just damn lucky. We survived the missile crisis out of sheer luck. And there have been other points in history. In 1983, there was a nuclear scare where the Russians thought that we were a mm -hmm. war exercise that we were engaged in was actually a preparation for a first strike. Um, you know, it, we've been very lucky these last seven decades, but the story is not over. And uh, it could still end badly. What, what, what are we to make of the whole story? Why is it relevant today beyond the fact that, you know, nuclear weapons become dangerous? And, of course, some defenders of nuclear weapons say those, those bombs actually have kept the peace. I don't agree right. with that. But um, what should we draw from this whole affair, in term, not only in terms of nuclear policy, but in terms of our domestic politics? Is there, what's the takeaway? Well, it's very relevant, the Oppenheimer story, to our own times. Um, you mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I think Donald Trump as a phenomena, as a political culture, as a, uh, his, his, kind, his brand of, of politics has its roots in Joe McCarthy and the McCarthy scare. And uh, it's a direct link. So... Uh, you know, my next project is a biography of Roy Cohn, and mm -hmm. Roy Cohn was Joe McCarthy's chief counsel who tried to subpoena Oppenheimer and was warned off because by Richard Nixon, Dwight Eisenhower sent his vice president to tell Roy Cohn, you know, don't subpoena Oppenheimer. We have other th plans in, in the works for him, i.e. the security hearing that would bring him down. And uh, who's Roy Cohn? Well, in 1973, he becomes Donald Trump's personal lawyer. And up until the day he died in 1986, he was teaching the young Donald Trump how to deal with the press, how to double down, how to always deny, how to always countersue. And Donald Trump and Joe McCarthy represent these deep strands in American history of anti-intellectualism, xenophobia, paranoia, uh, and uh, 
you know, a, a radical conservative yeah. hatred of the other and of immigrants. And it's just, it, it, it's a direct historical link. So Oppenheimer explains this. And I think the other important thing to remember about the Oppenheimer story and why it's so relevant is that, you know, we're a society today drenched in science and technology, yet we don't have scientific heroes anymore. And I think part of that is because of what happened to Oppenheimer in 1954, when scientists everywhere realized if you get out of your narrow lane and attempt to become a public intellectual and talk about policy and politics and the, the social implications for scientific discoveries and technology, then you could be tarred and feathered and brought down. This was what they learned. So we don't have scientists as public intellectuals. And when they do uh, arise, like in the pandemic recently, think of an what happened to Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. you know, the man's integrity and honesty was questioned. And we, this, is, this is part of American culture these days. We're we have a citizenry that is often um, deeply skeptical of scientific expertise and uh, and resentful of science and intellectuals. It's astonishing. One of the oddities of the current iteration of this Red Scare is that it's directed at our own government. I mean, that the other today is the federal government, the so-called deep state. It's America turning in on itself, uh, not using the boogeyman of the Russians or the Chinese, quite the opposite. <laughs> There's a lot of sympathy or parallel interest between the Russians and some of the extreme Republicans and the MAGA movement and so on, uh, which bodes even more ill toward uh, this country's future than during the Red Scare, it seems to me. Yeah, it's very odd. You know, uh, people on the left used to be uh, very suspicious of the FBI uh, under J. Edgar Hoover. And today, liberals are finding themselves in the position of trying to defend the <laughs> <laughs> these mm -hmm. these civil servants <laughs> and their objectivity and uh, the FBI is being uh, attacked from the right and I, I think this is all symptomatic of uh, our politics that has emerged over the last few decades and of and in fact of Roy Cohn and Joe McCarthy and Donald Trump's influence. Uh, you know, it, the so-called establishment that I was a critic of, and in fact, in some of my early books, the foreign policy establishment of John McCloy and George Bundy, who gave us the war in Vietnam, uh, well, that establishment's dead. Mm -hmm. it's, it's no longer the power center that it was. It, its culture and its political values of bipartisanship and and civil discourse, um, you know, it was fraught with, uh, they made bad decisions at times. It was fraught with perils, this establishment. But it, it, it no longer exists today. And in its place, we have this xenophobic, anti-intellectual populism uh, that is more influential than the old establishment. Uh, and it, it, you know, Roy Cohn is sort of haunting us from his grave. 
like- <laughs> there, there may come a time if if Trump is reelected, um, put back in the White House and begins the steps to create an authoritarian government, putting his hand-picked uh, henchmen in charge of the FBI and CIA and, and so on and try to upset democratic norms. We may see liberals crying out for a military coup <laughs> right. uh, to stop uh, the uh, theft of democracy by the Trump forces. Anyway, uh, that's, 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 that's what we're looking at. <laughs> so and no better way to end this than uh, to thank you, Kai, for taking a moment from your whirlwind tours, your interviews, because yes. of the blockbuster. And there, that, that's an irony, isn't it, calling this movie a blockbuster? Because that was a bombing term. Yes, right. Uh, well, so. it's, this this moment is filled with irony. You know, this book came out 18 years ago, and now suddenly I'm the lucky author who has a smart director like Christopher Nolan coming along to do the transform it in, into a big screen event. And uh, I'm just lucky he he's the kind of director who pays attention to details and authenticity, and he was really concerned to try to get the history right. So uh, right. I think it's a, right. an important film that I hope will lead to a national conversation on things nuclear and McCarthyism and the role of scientists as public intellectuals. It seems headed that way. Anyway, Kai, thanks so much for spending the time with us. and. Uh, I'll see you around. All your author friends are celebrating your success. (laughs) Thank you. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please check out the Spy Talk news site on Substack where our deeply experienced contributing writers offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses. Just Google Spy Talk and you'll find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast, like all the others, was smoothly produced by Kanai at MSW Media with expert editing from Molly Hawkey. Oh, and by the way, that music you've been hearing, that's the score for Oppenheimer, composed by Ludwig Göransson and inspired by, film notes say, director Christopher Nolan's longtime collaborator, Hans Zimmer. That's it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Stein. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. M.S.W. Media.